Good morning, everyone. <laughs> I'm very pleased to be able to come back and speak to you and talk about a topic that's very close to my heart right now. And um, uh, so I thank the Roshi for this opportunity. And uh, what I want to say is encouragement for your practice so that you will not be submerged by the things of the world, as we say in the loving-kindness meditation. So here's my offering. I have a story to tell you from the Lotus Sutra. In the Lotus Sutra, in uh, chapter 20, the Buddha tells a story of the Bodhisattva never disparaging. His name is never disparaging. Or depending on the translation, since I didn't have the book with me, I looked online and saw that there are multiple translations. <laughs> Bodhisattva never slighting. Bodhisattva never despising. And Bodhisattva never disparaging. They all have a little connotation, right? Slighting could be something that's done by a friend, but probably not despising, you know? So... Uh, the semantics kind of have a different feel, right? So we can kind of play with what this activity that the bodhisattva is not doing is, that makes sense. So let's say never disparaging. He was a monk that lived in an age of overbearing arrogance, rampant arrogance. And he was not like the other monks. He didn't chant. I don't think he sat zazen. He didn't read sutras. I think he couldn't read. His only practice was to say to people, whoever he saw in the monastery and um, on the streets, he would say, I have profound reverence for you. I would never treat you with disparagement or arrogance. You are practicing the Buddha way and certain to attain Buddhahood. And this did not go over well with people. They thought he was way out of line to make predictions. They may have thought that he was um, being scornful, ironically. They um, thought that this, this humble man had no standing to tell them that they would be Buddha someday. This was true for them in this age of arrogance. But no matter what they said to him, he would always say, I would never disparage you. You're all certain to attain Buddhahood. So this is how he got his nickname, his name, never disparaging. This was just so cheeky to them that they would chase him off out of groups. They would even throw rocks at him and sticks. And so he would scurry out of range and he would say, I will never disparage you. <laughs> you are certain to be Buddhas someday. So, um, as I mentioned, this was a this was in the Lotus Sutra. The Buddha was telling the story to an assembly in the in the Lotus Sutra, and at this point in the story, he reveals that he himself, the Buddha, had been bodhisattva, never disparaging in a previous lifetime, and. More than that, 
his assembly were these arrogant monks who had thrown rocks at him and that he had predicted would become Buddha someday. And so there he was with his prediction bearing out, coming true. So what is a bodhisattva? A bodhisattva is a person who is demonstrating what an an enlightened life looks like. And what was the bodhisattva never disparaging, demonstrating in this story? He was demonstrating that everyone has Buddha nature. Everyone has capacity to become a Buddha, even if they are noxious, even if they are um, behaving badly with bad consequences. He would say, I will not disparage you because I have faith in your Buddha nature and this capacity to be free of greed, hatred, and delusion. And he was saying that that capacity is more important than the fact that I'm annoying you right now. He was saying, you're worthy of my respect. You're worthy of my respect as a human, even when your behavior is terrible and has consequences. It was like a vow that he was practicing to always acknowledge the human nature and those who were disparaging to him and never to disparage back. And so it seems to me far from being a simple practice of a simple man, this is actually quite um, advanced, maybe not always skillful, you know, but not easy to do, not easy. And so we have opportunities all the time to be like the bodhisattva never disparaging all the time because have you noticed we live in an age of arrogance, rampant arrogance. And we live in a culture of despising and disparaging. You probably all know what it feels like to feel disparaged by someone or slighted or despised. And maybe in a knee-jerk reaction, we disparage right back. Kind of the, the, the um, really a knee-jerk reaction, like the, the thoughtless next step without considering maybe to turn around and disparage right back. And it might be at others, but it might be at ourselves too. And despising goes viral very fast. It's very competitive, and it's very contagious. And once it begins, it feels like it can feel like there's no breaks. You know, it's like an escalation, like an arms race. It can feel like there's there's a, there's no stopping point. I think I met the Bodhisattva never disparaging a version of him recently. It was um, at a protest outside the George R. Brown Convention Center, right? It was the weekend after the shooting at the uh, Rob Elementary in, in Uvalde. And it was, if you recall, the weekend that the NRA was scheduled to have their annual meeting at our convention center. And our national and our state leaders were all lined up to participate. 
And it was just too much to stomach. So thousands of people came out to Discovery Green, which is the park that's right next to the convention center downtown, and protested. And um, this is what I wrote about that. Oh, also, it was, it was our abbot, Galen, and Kirsten and I went together. And uh, so there we were. We arrived at the protest. There was outrage and sorrow, solidarity and connection, humor and surprise, and so much despising going on. I saw a couple shouting matches with NRA attendees who came into the protest, but most of the disparagement was going on along the avenue in front of the convention center. And it was aimed at the attendees who were going into the convention building. And people chanted, shame on you, shame on you, baby killers. And they were just so earnest. And the NRA folks laughed and they took videos scornfully. Um, and there were so many middle fingers. And at one point we were standing near a young man who was silent, but he was raising his hand in a peace sign. That's all he did. That was his practice. And I thought that was profound. I thought that was powerful. It may not have been noticed even by some people, but I thought it was powerful because he was saying, you disparage me. I offer you peace. You over here gather to buy guns in fear and you over here gathering to control guns in fear and remember gathering in peace. I thought it was powerful because that feeling of never ending escalation of I'm right, so you must be wrong. No, I'm right, so you must be wrong. Um, gave way to just the whole range of possibilities when this young man. And uh, to see one person reminding us like that, that there was an alternative to the scorning and the shaming was liberating. And I think... Um, when the Buddha spoke of against the stream, this practice flowing against the stream, it this reminded me of that. It was an alternative to that knee-jerk reaction of um, giving back what you've gotten in anger. So uh, that was the Bodhisattva never disparaging last month. And always reminding us, I believe, that we will be Buddhas, even the most deluded and unbearable of us. And I, I feel that this vow of the um, Bodhisattva is not to sugarcoat bad behavior and say, oh, it's okay, you can do that because you'll be a Buddha someday. Because what did he do when the the Bodhisattva was uh, um, threatened with rocks and stones. He ran away. You know, that was his reaction. He ran away to safety, but then he repeated his vow. 
he knew that they were dangerous, but he knew that's not all that they were. So now I'd like to talk about a dangerous leader who personifies the kind of transformation that um, I'd like to see. I think we'd all like to see more of these days. This is Emperor Ashoka. This is a, a name that sounds familiar to people. Okay, Ashoka was um, an emperor in the Mauryan Empire uh, about 300 years into the Common Era, so about 800 years after the life of the Buddha. And um, he was, when he was growing up, he was kind of one of the younger princes, one of the more minor princes, because his father, the emperor, had lots of wives. But he showed this aptitude for hunting and for fighting. And so his father sent him to military school where he really excelled. And um, he was sent out to uh, like the front line somewhere um, for a military engagement and got hurt and was convalesced by Buddhist monks and nuns. So he was aware of the, the, the compassion of Buddhists, the compassion of the Buddha as expressed through the people who are taking care of him. But I think it's a very important point that he did not internalize that at that time. He, he did not um, uh, take it to heart as the rest of his life shows up to a point, up to a turning point. Um, on the death of his father, there was a struggle for power. And the legends say that he killed all of his brothers in line so that he became the emperor. And um, there's uh, legends. He's an historical fig figure, but of course, his life is surrounded by legends. And some of them um, show the kind of person that he was before. Just terrible. And out of respect, I won't repeat those. You know, it could be slandering because um, legends, you know, they're not always based in fact. But just um, take the message that he was a person who um, was brutal. It was very brutal. It was not a compassionate leader. Um, he was very good at what he did as far as empire building, though. He, his uh, empire ranged from, let's see, Persia, which is Iran, you know, all the way to Burma. Very vast swath of land. And all of um, the Indian subcontinent ex continent, except for two places, the island of Ceylon and one holdout kingdom called Kalinga. So he gathered his forces and went after Kalinga. This was a terrible battle. And he estimates that about 130 to 300,000 people died in this battle and then another 150,000 people had to flee. They were refugees. So this sounds very modern, doesn't it? Sounds like uh, things that are happening now. But Ashoka went out onto the battlefield and he was walking along and was very moved at last by what he saw. He was uh, traumatized. And when he went home, he was having flashbacks about what he saw, the brutality, the consequences of his um, 
leadership. And once again, he was being attended by um, Buddhists. He heard a monk whose name was Upagupta. And Upagupta was chanting the refuges, taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And hearing this, Ashoka was deeply moved, and he became a student of this monk, Upagupta. And he vowed to never practice violence again. And he devoted himself completely to the practice of Buddhism and teaching of Buddhism. His reign changed dramatically, and it was solely focused on the well-being of his uh, subjects, according to the, these legends. Um, what we have is an archaeological record. He left um, monuments at the locations that were important in the Buddha's life, and he set up stone edicts all around India in the local languages, and um, they were um, messages of teaching. And um, <clears throat> I'm going to read you a set of 14 edicts to kind of indicate the kind of um, mind that this guy had now. 14. Number one is no living being is to be slaughtered or sacrificed. The second is medical care for humans as well as animals is to be provided throughout the empire. Monks are to tour the empire every five years, teaching the principles of Dharma to the common people. One's parents, priests, and monks are to be respected. Prisoners are to be treated humanely. Subjects are encouraged at all times to report their concerns regarding the administration. All religions are welcome as they desire self-control and purity of heart. Give to monks and the needy. Glory and fame count for nothing if the people do not respect the Dharma. Giving the Dharma to others is the best gift anyone can have. Whoever praises his own religion due to ex excessive devotion and condemns others with the thought, let me glorify my own religion, only harms his own religion. Therefore, contact between religions is good. Conquest by the Dharma is superior to conquest by force. But if conquest by force is carried out, it should be forbearance and light punishment. These 14 edicts were written so that people might act in accordance with them. So, such radical transformation is possible. Let's pause and think of someone who perhaps raises our hackles and imagine them in a transformation like Ashoka demonstrated. So post, post um, transformation. What does that take? Ashoka knew something about the Buddha's teaching and compassion uh, from his time in the hospital, but he didn't embody it until the trauma of war with the Kalingas turned him around. The turning points for each of us are always happening. And <clears throat> the transformation 
is inevitable, but it's unpredictable. So keep up the practice to save all beings. The age of arrogance that the Bodhisattva, not disparaging, lived in is now. So how can we use the examples of Bodhisattva never disparaging and Emperor Ashoka to navigate this world? Culture is learned and it's shared. Um, after I saw the young man holding up his peace sign, I held up mine too. Like, um, like, a, like we're clever monkeys, right? We, we learn from each other, we watch, we see, we repeat. And now I'm sharing it with you. So <clears throat> just as we've learned as a culture to expect reviling and to expect extremist thinking and acting, we can transmit the way of living and thinking for the benefit of others. And so um, I feel we should constantly be aware of how we disparage others and constantly be aware of how we disparage ourselves, um, which is a form of slander. And many of us students have taken the vow not to slander. And I feel that vow needs to become more visible in the world. I don't expect it to be immediately embraced. Um, there will be those who are deluded into thinking that never disparaging is a sign of weakness or insincerity or even gullibility, but don't be deterred. Even they will become Buddhists someday. One never disparaging approach might be to say, what you did was unacceptably bad and there are consequences. And I know you can do better. And if it feels like it's the right uh, response at the time, it could be explained further. I know you can do better, be better because you have the capacity to become fully enlightened, free of greed, hate, and delusion. And then run away from the sticks <laughs> and the rocks that come and repeat the vow. I have profound reverence for your Buddha nature. I would never disparage you. You are all sure to attain Buddhahood. 